Okay, everyone, uh, welcome to this um, session roundtable on the world in, in crisis. Um, the idea of this evening is that I'm chairing it, I'm Deborah Mabbitt. I'll ask specially tailored questions to members of the panel uh, for them to speak to. I think you know, um, you probably know four members of the panel uh, David Stein, Eric Kaufman, Ali Guven, and Alex Kolas who are all from the politics department. Um, I won't try and say anything about their expertise because actually part of the idea of the way this is organized is that you get to find out what they're interested in from the things they say tonight. Uh, but the one person I will say a little bit about is our special guest uh, from the uh, Department of Geography, Environment and Development Studies, Aideen Foley. Uh, we're very happy to have you here. Um, she has actually a really interesting background. She is a geographer um, specializing in, in climate change uh, modeling and climate change decision making. Uh, she has a background in, in uh, maths and physics, which I think we don't usually uh, have much uh, contact with in the politics department. So it's nice to have somebody a bit, a bit different here today. So uh, I'm going to start off um, with Ali, actually. We gave you a blurb for uh, tonight's event that, that started off by drawing attention to the um, turmoil in Brazil and Turkey. And Ali is the emerging powers person in, in the department. So uh, if I can ask you, Ali, uh, to talk a bit about uh, what, the wider, what you see as the wider causes of the turmoil in, in Brazil and Turkey. And um, will we see a return to stability anytime soon? What are the wider implications? Uh, thank you. Um, Deborah, I think I'll just stand. Uh, I took a few notes, but um, um, realizing what a huge question <laughs> that is, um, um, I do. Th I think the the surface problems in these countries are well known. Um, looking at both countries, you see the perfect storm of economic and political crises overlapping. And in the case of Brazil, you have falling commodity prices, economic mismanagement, continuing corruption, and of course, uh, a conservative political elite ousting in a, a form of, of, of political coup d'etat, the Rousseff government, and it's, it's the perfect storm. In Turkey, I find it a bit more serious and disconcerting. Uh, there is a downward spiral towards authoritarianism, but also economic uh, stagnation for the past several years. And there is uh, many people in Turkey think that the AKP government and Erdogan are escalating these security and political crises to divert attention away from it, for, from an economic uh, situation that do, does hurt their. Um, their uh, loyal economic base, or political base. But the, uh, the thing is, in both countries, actually, the root cause of the problem seems to be the difficulty of aligning the economic imperatives and political consequences of neoliberalism and economic change. What happened is that in both countries, first-generation market reformers uh, were removed from office in a series of very devastating financial crises in the early 2000s. And in both countries, we ended up with populisms of sorts. Brazil in the pink revolution pattern, rise of left populism, 
In Turkey, uh, it is a right-wing populism that promised some security towards the Sunni Turks. And that makes the Turkish case, I think, much closer to the sorts of problems we see in other parts of the world today. Uh, in some emerging countries, such as Russia and Hungary to, to some extent, but actually, I think Brexit and Trumpism <coughs> also uh, are similar in that you have this ascendant, uh, supposedly anti-elite, reactionary right-wing populism that uh, shows a lot of disdain for liberalisms of all kinds and maybe not all kinds of political liberalism in, in particular, uh, but also uh, strong reservations against globalization and global neoliberalism and, and global elites. And that uh, is something that I find quite worrying. Um, and the formula there uh, that these movements tend to use is, is quite, I find quite interesting. I think it has much to do with a shift in economic thinking in political right, a growing awareness of recognition of and, and uh, willingness to deal with the uh, economic problems caused to the majority of populations by rapid economic change. So uh, the formula they use, and that's quite similar in, in Hungary and in Trump as well, Turkey too, is to appeal to the uh, to the identity politics of the ethno-linguistic, uh, racial, ethnic, uh, religious, whatever majority, the majority identity politics, combine that with a message of economic change that promises to compensate for the losses that same majority perceivably suffered in the hands of a metropolitan liberal globalized elite. That is the formula. It doesn't have to include a very systematic redistributive effort, but there is that, that more benign or supposedly progressive message packaged towards the, the ethno-linguistic, racial, religious majority. And that is a very deadly combination. We, we recognize that from fascism. That's, that's the uh, sort of in the same wavelength. I'm not saying that these are openly fascist movements in every country is of course different. We can't just say, we can't just say, you know, it's all the same. But the, the, the linkages are there and that makes the, the job of the left very, very difficult. We don't have a good defense against that. And coming to the last part of your question, the stability, I think would require a strong left alternative to this sort of politics because there is no guarantee, as we saw from example after example, that it will stop there. If that message, that combination, has the potential to become quite self-reinforcing, and it, it has the potential to erode institutions that we, we take for granted. Right? It's very very, um, a very difficult position. But so that essentially is you know, looks very uh, parochial in some ways. The, crisis in Brazil and Turkey. I think the Turkish right-wing populism, that conservative message with some uh, inclination towards compensating through palliative means for the losses of the uh, ethnic religious majority, I think Eric has much to say on that as well, is a big problem. So I'll... Thanks a lot, Ali.
So um, you sort of seeked nicely for us um, into into Eric's um, contrib first contribution this evening. So um, Eric's uh, work focuses on the political implications of changes in population and, and population structure. And uh, so Eric, what do you what do you see as the insights from demography into the rise of right wing populism? Okay, yeah, thanks, thanks, Deborah. I'll sort of segue from, from Ali a bit. So I'm going to talk a lot, some of you have heard this, this shtick of mine, but about uh, political demography, the idea that population change can affect politics. And then I'm going to talk, I'm going to wind up talking about Trump and Brexit at the end. So um, the first thing is that if, if we just think about world population, if you look at a curve of world population, it starts off kind of like this and then just spikes like in the last 50 years or so. Um, so we're going through this exponential rise in population. Where it really becomes political, though, is when the growth is in different parts of the world, in different countries and amongst different ethnic groups and not amongst others. That means different countries are growing faster than others and different ethnic groups are growing faster than others. And that's when you start to get, particularly when it's one person, one vote, numbers count, so that's when population starts to impact politics. So um, what we have is, uh, the other thing is demographics. Uh, globally, we've got the global south, which is still going through its demographic transition. Population explosion is still happening. Uh, and, and an aging and declining west uh, in terms of population. So that means you've got this huge gradient between a part of the world that's booming in population terms that's very young, part of the world that's aging needs workers, and so you're getting this population movement from north to south in unprecedented numbers. We saw that perhaps with the migration crisis. Um, what that then does is it, it changes the balance between ethnic groups in the developed countries that allow immigration, which is not East Asia, but in the West. And that means that the dominant or majority ethnic groups are declining as a share of the population. And that's where I would locate uh, the source of much of what we're seeing. I don't believe, actually, and I obviously been pretty outspoken about this, but I don't believe the economic crisis, the recession, has much of anything to do with what we're seeing in Brexit. A bit more with Brexit, but certainly not with Trump. So this ethnic change then, uh, I think, is, is, is something that a lot of populist parties have seized on. Uh, one of the questions we have to ask, for instance, is why is it right-wing populism and not left-wing populism that is most important in the northwest of Europe and North America where you have uh, essentially got healthy economics, but you've got fast ethnic change. So it's this con this collision of ethnic change with uh, an ethnic majority that feels insecure, and that provides opportunities for political entrepreneurs like Trump, Farage, uh, Le Pen, and so forth. So anyway, I'll just leave it there, and uh, okay. I think I've used my time up. So. Oh well, I wasn't I wasn't counting, but <laughs> all right, okay. Um, you <laughs> Happy get, to answer you, questions. You get, you get another yeah. another bite of okay. the cherry, anyway. Uh, so, Eileen, uh, if we can move on to you, um, we've seen uh, in uh, the U.S. the election of a president who says he doesn't believe in climate change. Yes, we have. And um, more generally, you know, like it could be said that that climate science has a, has a communication problem. Uh, how, how, how do you see it in terms of um, addressing that problem and really getting across the message of the importance of addressing climate change? We standing. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So I think it's um, 
what this election and the way that issues have been communicated throughout this election has sort of brought to the fore is that it's not so much a problem with how you communicate climate science. It seems to be a problem across the board with how a lot of ideas are being communicated. Um, so yes, we have uh, President-elect who tweeted that um, climate change is a Chinese hoax. We have uh, China at the latest cop in Marrakesh having to say, no, 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 it, it's not a, a hoax perpetrated by us. Um, it's actually happening. Um, and there's been kind of concern about, you know, does this hamstring efforts on climate change? Is the fact that we have this president-elect who has said he doesn't believe in it, but then he took that back. Uh, does it create issues for negotiations going forward? And I think we still have reasons to be optimistic here because the reality is that the negotiations that the Paris Agreement has come out of, it's the result of decades of ongoing um, negotiation and ongoing recognition <coughs> of climate change as a problem. So there is that momentum built up over a great deal of time. Um, I think the bigger issue that I see is not just Trump and how Trump perceives climate change, but the larger kind of issue of how people perceive um, scientific issues. Uh, in preparation for this panel, I went to the website Breitbart.com to see what was the kind of voice from the other side. I'm more of a guardian girl, but I went there. Um, has anyone who hands up who has? Who has been to Breitbart? Ooh, okay, so that's actually quite a few. <laughs> but it's kind of interesting because it, it, there's definitely a, sort of a divide, right, between where we get our news and you do tend to get your news from sources that you feel are reputable. So I went to Breitbart and I learned that I'm probably a Gaia worshipper because if you're a liberal, then, you know, you're probably worshipping Gaia somewhere in there. Um, and this was one of the articles I read, that, you know, um, conservatives have our religious people, whereas liberals tend to worship Gaia. And I'm reading this thinking, why would you? Who would believe this? Why would you trust this? Which then got me kind of thinking about the issues of trust and the media. Why does anybody trust any source? Why do I trust The Guardian and somebody else trusts Breitbart? And I think that's kind of the issue that we need to get to the bottom of. I'm not sure that it's a science communication issue as much as just a communication issue at this point. I think it's understanding why do people trust the sources that they trust. And there's been studies around climate change communication that show that a lot of it is who you interact with, what's considered reputable by the people around you, who's <coughs> referring you to things. Are there people who you trust, who you value their opinion, who have this belief? Then you're probably going to tend to pick up that belief as well. Um, and the other thing that I kind of thought was that, you know, there's an issue of do you perceive yourself in different um, sources of media? Is there, are there certain outlets that are saying things that you feel from your experiences are true and other ones where you can't establish that trust? And is it a case that, um, you know, there isn't enough representation of the experiences of people who tend to get their news from Breitbart? Are their lives not being represented in more liberal sources? I think there's a lot of work to be done here, which 
um, will feed into climate change communication, but it's far more of a social science, psychology, much broader disciplines need to be brought in in order to figure out how we get over this issue with how complex problems are being framed in the media and then leading us to Twitter storms uh, about climate change. Uh, I don't know how long I've spoken for. It's but fine. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks very much. So Try and keep to our four minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Alex, your work touches on climate change, um, particularly in its relation to other, other issues like food security. And, and there's an idea out there that climate change is like a sort of threat multiplier, that problems that we face in the world are, are all exacerbated by, by climate change. So could you say a bit about that concept and whether you think it's a useful one? <clears throat> so I'm going to show my age and stay sat down. And um, you're right, it's, um, threat multiplier is a military term for exacerbating. It's just a fancy term for saying that uh, climate change is making existing inequalities uneven, unevenness uh, even more unequal uh, and uh, uneven. <clears throat> and I think that uh, is manifestly the case. It manifests itself in various domains. One that you've mentioned, which is so-called food security. I mean, food security refers to the idea of having um, a safe, nutritious, um, dependable source of, uh, of food, um, but in the last 20-30 years it has been compromised by all kinds of changes in direct relation or indirect relation to, to climate change. The positive feedback loops involving um, changing weather patterns, changing or more volatile irrigation in different parts of the world, um, droughts. Um, in more indirect form um, it is affecting the way in which food is grown um, and the, the competitors uh, in terms of resources, particularly land, for the production of food. Uh, I'm thinking obviously of, of things like biofuels. But already with biofuels you get something quite interesting which is that um, biofuels are mediated through states and markets and so this thing that we call climate, uh, nature, um, the weather, um, starts to become something that needs to be incorporated into existing social structures and social um, relations. Um, this is especially true in the past decade with the so-called financialization of food, where key food crops and, of course, um, the, the types of food that all of us are increasingly depending on uh, are being reduced, um, have been part of uh, trust, uh, of, of um, uh, sovereign state funds or have been incorporated into the wider financial sector, thereby increasing volatility. So you've got volatility coming in from uh, climate change, but also volatility emerging from, from markets. Um, another kind of example of uh, which I'm quite interested in, given that I'm, I'm working on, on the sea, uh, of the positive feedback loops that are generating a threat multiplier is polar ice melt and the kinds of problems that are emerging for polar uh, Arctic uh, states, including Russia, Norway, uh, Canada, uh, generating, it would seem, a new frontier, much like in the 19th century, a frontier uh, of a closed world uh, generating uh, inevitable clashes between states. Uh, the fact is, however, that thus far, notwithstanding the Russians planting titanium uh, flags and you know, the continental shelves or, or the Canadians saying that you know if you, if you don't use it you lose it when referring to their northern territories 
Um, the fact is that these kinds of disputes are being resolved mainly through legal means of um, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, through multilateral agencies. So my view of threat multiplier is that it's a descriptive term, which we can just replace by exacerbate. Um, and I think there's a more sinister um, aspect, which I would like to emphasize perhaps for discussion, and that is that it, it acts as a, uh, as a sort of a, a form of securitizing uh, or depoliticizing, naturalizing nature. Nature becomes something outside of us, outside of societies. It happens to us, um, and therefore the political kinds of responses are increasingly uh, militarized or uh, are connected to counterinsurgency. I mean, one of the more intelligent intellectual, uh, organic intellectuals of the, um, of the defense establishment across the Western world, but particularly in the US, David Kilcullen, talks uh, about the world becoming more connected, crowded, and coastal. And he's absolutely right in terms of, of, of a description. But how uh, that those positive feedback loops actually operate in terms of generating violent conflict, the dynamics of those conflicts, I think is overwhelmingly uh, a political issue. Uh, it's, it's politics stupid. It's about resources, uh, political resources uh, being, it's about distribution. How do you distribute those social political resources? Thanks a lot, Alex. So um, now I'll turn to David Steyan. Um, David, uh, can we go back to some, some specific country cases here? We have uh, uh, talked about um, environmental problems, uh, demography, populism, public life. How do you see these issues uh, shaping up in the parts of, of Africa that you're familiar with in your work? Okay, <clears throat> I was told it was about crisis, and I don't know anything about crisis. It's not my research. It's not primarily what I'm interested in. Um, but they said, no, no, you should come to a so, um, What I guess people will be talking about was a kind of doom, gloom, loose, woolly idea of crisis about the environment and demography. So I said, okay, well, look, let's take some practical examples of the impact of very rapid demographic growth and environmental degradation. Two obvious ones, very small islands, Micronesia, um, the Maldives, etc. There are not very many people there. Okay. How about the Sahel? That broad swathe of uh, Africa stretching from Senegal to Eritrea, depending on exactly how you measure it, maybe 100 million people, about a tenth of the number of people on the African continent, and clearly an area very critically familiar with the tropes that get discussed in the Western world of um, global warming, environmental degradation, um, persistent droughts over at least the last 50 years, and perhaps no more better symbol of that than Lake Chad itself, once one of the largest um, inland uh, lakes and now barely visible on satellite. Although it's still there, it's just very marshy. Um, so surely the Sahel <coughs> is the kind of paradigmatic uh, example of crisis and the link between demography, environmental degradation, and political chaos, particularly because you've got things like, that we hear a lot about in the West, Boko Haram around Lake Chad, um, Darfur, civil wars in Chad, uh, Mali, civil war, Islamist quasi-takeover three years ago. It seems to fit very well 
the very loose and usually lazy perceptions of what politics in Africa is about. And in that sense, it seems to outsiders to fit the idea of a sort of period of continuous uncertainty, which was Alex's definition of crisis that he gave us. But actually, when you visit places, when you look at policy debates and talk to real politicians, it's the opposite. Because these areas are incredibly dynamic. At least this is what I want to argue. And have been extraordinarily adaptive. There's only a crisis if you've been used to something that's static. Basically, people here have been, you know, living with slow deindustrialization, growth of the service sector, and now something's going to change. But if you've been living with <coughs> constant change and you've adapted to that change, then uh, the future looks very, very different. Rather than talking about the whole of the Sahel, let me just take three countries that I'm familiar with. Uh, going across Mali, Niger, Chad, together about 40 million people. Okay, Overwhelmingly dependent upon rain-fed agriculture in these very, very harsh semi-pastoral desertic conditions. What's incredible is that in the 55 years since independence, they all got their independence in 1960, bits of the French Empire, the population has tripled in that period. Okay? But the people are still living there. They've got very complex cultures, deep political roots. These are kingdoms uh, with long, long histories. Um, the quality of life, despite the tripling of the number of people, has massively improved in recent decades. That's what the whole Millennium Development Goal blah blah stuff is about. It's at an incredibly low level. These three states are at the bottom of your list of the 200 states in the world on almost all criteria. And yet the lives of people have really, really improved. So, well, what about politics? Surely politics is driven by demographic pressure and environmental catastrophe. Well, not really. You've got the same elites governing these states over the last 50 years. It's true, there's been quite a lot of political violence and infighting, but it's fighting among the elites. Okay? We don't see any of these kind of populist-type pressures that are being referred to here. And if we had some of the representatives of those elites, we'll get some students from um, N'Djamena or Niami here and say, right, what are the main political issues that you've faced over the last 10 years? Almost certainly they'd say, well, it's the invasion of Libya. Two of the presidents who are very close to France and the United States, for reasons I'll touch on in a second, I'm probably going to run out of time, but I'll go on, explicitly said, do not remove Gaddafi. They've got no truck with Gaddafi. In fact, one of them made his reputation fighting against him. But he said, well, create chaos and create exactly what you don't want. But of course, they overthrew Gaddafi. So the states have lived with the consequences, notably a significant movement of people because these countries had a lot of people living in Libya, which is quite a rich country. They didn't go to Europe, they went home. The states absorbed those people, a huge number of people in <coughs> Libya. So the states have got poorer recently because you lost a lot of remittances that families were dependent upon. And in fact, that's what led to the chaos in Mali. All right, quite a small number of people went back and Mali, which was a bit of a darling of the West, actually, because it was democratic, 
the state collapsed because actually it was a narco state. The elites that were running Mali were just lining their pockets with lots of drug money and pretending that there was a state. And so that state collapsed. But it got nothing to do with environmental pressure or degradation um, and demographic pressure. So yes, you know, there are a lot of problems, but when you actually look at political decisions, there are political actors who are very clever politicians, far cleverer than the politicians here. They often have to manipulate a lot of external actors, like the US Army and the French and all sorts of aid donors and all these hundreds of UN agencies, because actually they are dependent on food aid. Um, doesn't cost very much money. I mean, it's $2 billion this year to feed about 25 million people who are food aid dependent across the Sahel. Only half of that will be supplied, because that's what happened last year and the year before. So we're talking about a billion dollars. It's what Google announced yesterday for the building in King's Cross. It's peanuts, but it takes a bit of manipulating and extracting um, from. But otherwise, you can run the states and continue. And people are looking forward to the future, and they're optimistic. And if we went through, and I haven't got time, so I won't do it, the NDGs, we know the global figures, massive reduction in global poverty, significant advances on things that really matter to people, maternal health, access to education. They're incredibly low in Mali, Niger, and Chad, but they have improved significantly. Just has, has and I'll finish on this, mobile phone ownership, access to the internet, and the other stuff that we're familiar with. So um, I thought I was going to be challenging kind of doom, gloom, and crises ideas, which didn't quite emerge. But, uh, <laughs> well, never mind. We'll, 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 have a, we'll, we'll get there. We'll have yeah, another yeah, run around yeah. and give David another chance to be, be contrary at the end of it, um, at which point after that uh, we'll be opening out to, to questions. So if you have got questions, please make a note of them and, uh, and you will get your, your chance to ask them. Um, on the second round, uh, I, I've got a set of questions about aspects of, of global governance, basically, and, and this time I, I'd like to ask Aideen to kick off. Um, given all the um, technological uh, innovations and developments that can, can take place to help combat climate change, um, what do you see as being the sort of the global governance issues around trying to make progress and implement those changes? Okay, so I think it actually comes back to what Alex was saying about the difficulties with incorporating climate into social structures because you've got a challenge stemming from the scales on which we see, we kind of organize our ideas about political structures and economic structures. The climate doesn't care about that. The climate is global and what happens in one place has impacts somewhere else and it, it's transboundary. So that creates a situation where you've got a mismatch between the scales and the places, the geographies where the impacts are going to be and where the action to combat it is going to take place. Um, so it really does have to be a global effort if we really want to tackle climate change at its root and mitigate our emissions. Uh, it's not really enough if uh, one country goes it alone, you really do have to have international cooperation. Having said that, um, there's certain co-benefits to measures to 
address climate change on the local level. Um, so while the major two greenhouse gases, CO2 and methane, are um, well mixed, so regardless of where they're emitted into the atmosphere, they end up being spread throughout the atmosphere. If we think about um, tropospheric ozone, or smog essentially, that's not so well mixed. So the effects of it are felt in the locality where it's emitted. So you end up with a situation where, in that case, you've got co-benefits for the locality if you deal with that problem. The benefits for health and well-being are going to be felt in the place as well. So there are certain ways in which it can be made, the, the actions can be said to be appealing on a local level. But on the larger scale, we need um, transboundary cooperation, which is where the Paris Agreement and solidifying that into strong action comes in. Um, in addition to mitigation, though, if you take a look at the scenarios that uh, the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the reports that have been put together um, that show scenarios that would keep us below dangerous climate change thresholds, those scenarios tend to include what's called negative emissions technologies and it's not always made very explicit uh, in the scenarios that are developed and the modelling that's done how close we are to being able to implement these technologies. So when we say negative emissions, we're talking about technologies that will take CO2 out of the atmosphere and we need that. It's um, thought based on modeling that's been done that we need that in addition to cutting down on what we're putting out into the atmosphere. So things that um, could accomplish those negative emissions are things like artificial trees, um, chemical scrubbing to take the, the CO2 out of the atmosphere, or increasing the uptake of um, the oceans, the CO2 carbon uptake of the oceans by adding certain chemicals to the ocean water. All of these have side effects or certain barriers to implementation, ranging from things like just the planning issues associated with building a load of scrubbing towers. It's going to be much the same as building a wind farm, right? There's going to be issues with people not wanting to have to see that. Um, there's issues to do with the environmental impacts of these technologies. If you think about changing the chemistry of the oceans in order to promote more carbon uptake, there could be unintended consequences with that as well. And then very practically, just the time and the cost of rolling out these technologies isn't um, necessarily the, the time skills that we need. Um, so there's kind of those two strands of what needs to be done, the mitigation, which needs to be a global effort, and also the negative emissions technologies, which um, are kind of underestimated in their importance, I think, at the moment. And um, yeah, it, it all requires uh, global effort because it is all transboundary, even though there are ways in which individual countries can take action. And there is you know, clear reasons in some cases why individual countries might want to take action. It's worth noting that um, reports published this week uh, show that this is the third year in a row now where emissions have stayed stable. Um, and this is largely being attributed to emissions from coal power plants in China decreasing. So that's um, illustrating really that one country can make a difference in terms of the overall numbers, but a lot more is needed than stabilizing at current levels in order to really address the problem. Um, so yeah, we have, we have tools, 
we have the potential to address this. There's still uncertainties and there are still issues around how we pull together and actually implement this and um, deal with um, implementing these decisions. But there's hope. There's we have the tools. We have the power. It's just a case of um, the putting this into reality, uh, turning the Paris Agreement into real action and moving that forward. Um, I don't know how long I've spoken for, but... That's fine. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, um, there seems to be a little wave of optimism <laughs> coming over the panel, but I'm sure Alex can do something about <laughs> so, so, you use the expression pulling together. Um, it would have to be said that this hasn't been a great year for global governance. Generally, if you think of the fate of some big agreements uh, like TTIP and so on. Perhaps you think these are agreements that shouldn't happen anyway, but, and of course the EU hasn't had a, a terribly good year, at least in England and Wales. Uh, so, Alex, can you say something about how you see the state of our global governance institutions and their legitimacy and popularity? Well, it was pretty bad uh, before last Wednesday, so um, it's got worse. However, let me quickly um, pick up on what Aideen was saying. I mean, I, I come at it more on the implementation side. I think you're right, Aideen, that um, in many respects we know what the problem is, and the problem is uh, our dependence on fossil fuels, our civilizational dependence. But we also know that certain parts of the world and certain people within those parts of the world are far more dependent or generate much more uh, heat than, than many other parts of the world. So I think the, the real challenge for implementation is that we would be talking uh, about, even on a sort of social democratic, medium to long term plans for weaning ourselves off uh, fossil fuels, uh, which I think is, you know, is the obvious thing that needs to be done. Uh, we're talking about radical social change, and I think that's, that's the big challenge, that uh, it would mean um, everybody might be in it together in terms of the uh, analysis, but certainly not in terms of the solution, which um, I think tends to come around various ways. I'm not saying I have the solution, but uh, thinking in terms of international relations, and I'll come to governance in a minute, um, you've got the sort of geoengineering aspect of things. We can, um, we can try and uh, <coughs> mitigate by using technology. Uh, you've got the, the sort of deniers, you know, we can just wait till it, this is a natural phenomenon. Or you've got the more radical view, which is that we're going to have to radically redistribute um, wealth from the way wealth is generated, in including things like, like food, which you know, for all intents and purposes, we, we, those of us in this part of the world at least, eat fossil fuels, whether we eat meat or not, for instance. So it's in that context that I would say that global governance is not really more than the sum of its parts. Um, I mean, to coin a phrase in international relations, global governance is what states make of it. Um, and some states clearly are more powerful than others, and the fact that we've just, or the Americans, sorry, I should say, have just elected a, a climate denialist, and uh, America firstist as a sort of nativist, xenophobic um, uh, a nationalist, uh, does not bode well for, for that kind of argument. But I would say that that's not unique to either Trump or the United States. I mean, that kind of phenomenon um, is with us in other parts of the world and has been in the past. So I think global governance is an aspiration which, was, uh, which emerged, as many of us know, in the 1990s in the context of the end of the Cold War as an attempt to regulate all kinds of transnational flows, and by then that included climate change. But 
um, in many respects, it's it's not um, it. it it doesn't really reflect anything but the existing power relations uh, in the international system. Um, and I think that um, when, when states put their, uh, their mind to it, then there can be all kinds of uh, cooperation um, that, does, that does lead to some kind of uh, um, inter interaction that, that you were referring to. I mean, just to very briefly, um, I think that the crisis, talking about the crisis of legitimacy, is one where um, there's a misalignment between, if you like, uh, authority, legitimacy, and legality. Um, in the Cold War, not a time that I think any of us would necessarily want to climb back to, but historically there was some degree of alignment. Um, authority was fairly clear established in states and the superpowers. There were certain, certain legal norms that were uh, upheld in different ways, including that of sovereign uh, integrity or the territorial integrity of sovereign states um, and therefore the system with all its problems had some degree of legitimacy. Uh, what I think we've seen over the past 20-30 years is a misalignment of those three areas. I mean to put it in plain English, what's right, what's good, uh, what's possible are misaligned and I think uh, the, the responses to the crisis in Syria for instance, uh, we know what's, what, the, what the good thing to do would be um, which is to um, push towards some political settlement that might put Assad out. But that's not really aligned with the, what is possible, uh, especially given the superpower and regional power intervention. And it's not really aligned with what's right, with the, with the, with the legality, because the United Nations here, the U UN Security Council in particular, uh, is, is absent. Uh, and I think it's partly absent because its last um, alignment of legality, legitimacy, and authority was over Libya in, in the UN Security Council Resolution 1973 uh, to 2011. So I, I do think that, in the end, in the same way that I was saying it's politics, <laughs> stupid, it's states. And it's those of us that have American friends or Australian friends uh, or those of us that might have the vote or not in this country that need to mobilize for the kinds of changes. Uh, even if they're social democratic changes, you know, in the medium term, within within these these states. Thanks, Alex. So, um, Ali, we'll come back to you now. Um, so, you've been challenged a bit on the idea that uh, it's the economy, stupid. Um, <laughs> but um, let, if you could say a bit about how you see the institutions for for governing the global economy, we seem to still be in very febrile times. Yeah. Um, and so, what's your assessment of, of their? Yeah, thank you. I think, um, yeah, I think we're um, we're getting somewhere with uh, the latest round of comments that I would agree a lot with both Adim and uh, Alex on on the both scale of the problems and potential solutions. We need collective action and mobilization towards that. So it, it, one issue there which is related to uh, global economic <coughs> governance is that actually uh, there has never been a better structure of international economic coordination than there exists today. Uh, there is a far more comprehensive architecture of global economic interactions and rules today and that's down to two major things. First, what the United States thought of as the most effective means of uh, 
of putting the global or international economy back together after the Second World War. So that was formal, rules-based, inclusive uh, institutions such as IMF and the GATT and the and the uh, World Bank and so on. And also uh, the globalization itself both created demand for for these institutions and as these institutions expanded their power they also reinforced globalization. So the overdetermination between existing patterns of global economic governance and globalization. But the problem is to go back to Alex's point about there was a threat multiplier. Mm. So the globalization is the complexity multiplier. Things got to such a r ridiculously complex uh, level for many states and a lot of actors that actually existing patterns of global economic governance are not sufficient, they're not effective, and they are of course built upon uh, the, the uh, sorts of interests that are dominant today, both class interests and state interests. So there is the effectiveness problem and the, 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 the biggest example of that is the international financial regulations. Uh, there has been some progress in that area, but so little compared to the scale of the problem we faced in 2007-8. The second issue, so effectiveness is one problem for global economic governance. The second problem, of course, is that that uh, structure, although inclusive, is not sufficiently representative. It does not respond to the growing multipolarity in the world economy as fast as it should. So countries such as China and India and Russia, they feel underrepresented, and they have ways to deal with that. But with those kinds of powers feeling that uh, global economic currency is not truly working for them, and now with, uh, with Brexit and Trump coming to the fore, it becomes <coughs> extremely, once again, complicated to improve existing mechanisms of global economic governance. And here again, trade is one area where there is room for improvement. Monetary relations are a bit better, but, but especially the investment regimes, especially the, the environment-related aspects of economic coordination, especially financial regulations, there's so much room for improvement. I am not, though, uh, very, very pessimistic. Uh, in that there was a time in the uh, early to mid-2000s mid where you had this ultra-globalization movement that petered out afterwards. But I think that both, uh, tying it with, with uh, Eric perhaps, demographics might be on our side there in the medium run to re-energize a movement like that. And actually in the U.S. the Sanders uh, movement is, is, I think it is... Uh, on a fairly uh, potentially influential path, so there might be something coming from there. But, but in the end, again, to go back to uh, something that uh, Eileen uh, said in the beginning, is it's, it's a matter of uh, packaging truth and communication in a way that would make sense to voters. Right? The, the complexity is a big problem for us, and left is notorious for being overly honest about certain things. So you can't go to people and say, here is a simple solution to your everyday problems. And you know, you, you can't do that. And how do you make sure that people, this is post-truth politics. How do you uh, make sure that people do actually value uh, the truth that there has to be perhaps sacrifices made in terms of everyday 
let's say, uh, living standards about climate change and so on and so forth, or immigration and all that, that is a very, very big challenge in a context where much of the media is controlled by um, uh, not the nicest guys in the world. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Yeah, thank you. So, Eric, um, demography and, and global governance. I mean, where, where is demography taking us in terms of patterns in, in world politics? Okay. Or a different... Well, I don't know. I don't know whether... Because, I mean, we he had... He was given the questions beforehand, so he shouldn't be looking at <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I thought it was going to be uh, religion, but actually, if, if we if we want to talk more about um, populism, I'm happy to do that as well. I mean, I... I okay, fine. Well, we'll talk about that more. Um, no, well... Uh, well, I would say, I mean, global, if you want to talk about global governance, um, you know, I'm not necessarily have a lot to say there other than to say that obviously populism is is targeting uh, global what, are the, what are the implications of a more religious world for our... Yeah, so, so, I mean, in a way, again, this is, I think, largely or, or has, is very much a story of demography because, I mean, if you think, sorry, yeah, but if you think about uh, how most people get religion, it's generally through birth, right? So it's the old-fashioned way. Um, and that generally means that the religious groups that tend to have more births are going to have more members. Um, and which is one of the reasons why actually the world has become more religious, is becoming more religious as a whole, as a globe, because the global south, which is where 97% of the world's population growth takes place is overwhelmingly religious and the secular parts of the world have very low birth rates. So we're getting religious growth and it's not just Islam, it's also Christianity, it's also uh, other religions, but pre predominantly those two, Christianity and Islam, growing largely through uh, popula uh, large population growth. The other thing is the scale of this demographic change is doesn't have many analogs uh, historically. So if you, if you look at Europe and it's offshoots, North America, um, there was an increase from 1800 until 1950 from 200 million to 750, 700 million. So 3.5, 3.7-fold increase due to the fact that um, the death rate fell before the birth rate, which is how the demographic transition works. So you had a population explosion. Three, so 3.5 times bigger in 1950 than in 1800. Now, some of the numbers for just a set of 20 developing countries, a paper was put out recently, suggest that instead of sort of three or three and a half times, we're going to get, by the time to a lot of today's developing countries reach the end of their demographic transitions, uh, a multiplication of between eight and 24 times in population. Compare that to about three, 3.5 for Western Europe and its offshoots. Why is that? Mainly because uh, in 1800, a lot of kids died, even though the West did have an advantage in terms of sanitation and medicine. A lot of kids died, so actually the population wasn't able to explode quite as much as it is now with better medicine, better sanitation. So we're talking about quite explosive population growth in the developing world. It's also going to bust and crash much faster as well, but that's another story. So. In that context, religion has a lot of force behind it. The other thing is immigration what do you mean into by Boston crash, well, in terms of the fertility rates coming down faster. Okay. So Iran is an example of that. You know, twenty years going from you know six and a half kids to two kids or less. Uh, but anyway, um, 
So the point then is also that the immigrants coming into the West are predominantly religious. They're not just ethnically different, religiously different. Um, so if you look at this country, uh, London, for example, religion is actually static or increasing. The number, the proportion of people in London who say, I have no religion, is actually flat or is slightly declining. Uh, whereas in the rest of England and Wales, it's dropped by anywhere up to 40%. So quite rapid uh, drops in the rest of England and Wales. Why? Because of religious immigration. So re demography, again, population, very important for religion. And that is going to have some, I don't think it'll have major political knock-on effects uh, so much in London, but it does have potential. And where we see that in another dramatic way is in Israel, and I, I've talked a lot about Israel, but the ultra-Orthodox, you know, fundamentalist groups who have large families, um, you know, the ultra-Orthodox are expanding greatly in Israel as a share of the Jewish population. Uh, we also see in the Israeli, the IDF, the Israeli army, uh, modern Orthodox who are religious Zionists are increasing their share of the officer class. Again, this is due to the fact they have larger families and that's going to affect politics. So I do, I would say that the demography of religion uh, has a big role to play, or, or an increasing role to play in politics, but uh, I'll leave it there. Thanks a lot, Aaron. So, um, we're running slightly over time, so I'm slightly reluctant to hand back to <laughs> David, uh, but, um, <laughs> but I, I think uh, on the basis of fair dibs, uh, you should have a, another shot at your question. In your email to me, you, you talked about the emergency in France, and, and um, I got the impression that you feel that too much talk of crisis can have very adverse political effects in terms of things like declaring states of emergency and so on. I just wonder if you'd like to say that under some very severe time constraints. Sure, yeah. So just three points. Um, the first of which I, I really don't understand the idea of religious immigration. If I was to explain why the states and societies that I described as being so dynamic <coughs> and having survived, it's largely because of religion, that the religious bonds of those societies, primarily Islamic, but partially Christian, managed to encompass these huge, huge changes. That's my first point. Um, we can argue about that. So two other points to do with crisis. Um, the first link to Alex's point about the shift from a relatively stable Cold War bipolar world to multipolarity, just to remind everyone that we are in the nuclear age. And it seems to me that uh, the possibility of well, the possibility of war is, is very, very high, so it's been there. Uh, and the tactical use of nuclear weapons is very possible. And I'd be curious, but not for this evening, how does that then feed into uh, environmental discussions and debates, and, and et cetera, et cetera. The second and final point, which links to France, was the way that crisis gets banded around in let's just say Western European politics, um, we've absorbed what get termed crises, like the attacks in London. Um, and I can't help but mention that there was a student from Birkbeck who was killed. There's a member of staff in UCL, someone who used to clean these rooms, who was also killed. But they're not crises. The buses were up running two days later. We absorbed them. What's quite astonishing is that there haven't been any more attacks here. Um, 
There will be more attacks. I don't think it will constitute a crisis in any way, shape or form. What's astonishing is that there haven't been. <coughs> there have been in France. And what uh, is hugely problematic is the way that the French state and government reacted, notably exactly a year ago. Um, instead of seeing this as being something very predictable, expected and to be managed, they said, oh, it's a declaration of war, and declared a state of emergency, playing directly into the populist forces uh, that were talked about earlier on, and playing directly into their very tiny number of disorganized opponents' hands. Um, so I think that the misuse of notions of crisis uh, is problematic in Western Europe for the political conjuncture that we're in. Thank you. Okay, so um, you've all been very, very patient. I'm going to stand up so that I can see people at the back. Um, there are, by the way, quite a few seats down the front if anybody wants to, to move down. But actually, everybody seems to be seated. Okay, well, you know, I see one of my colleagues put his hand up very emphatically first, so I'll just try and ignore him for a moment. And see <laughs> uh, it's going to come in. Okay, Jason, I think you have, you have the floor. Well, I want to just get it out of the way. Uh, okay. um, so, can I have comments, two sets of comments rather than questions? So, uh, I want to talk about Donald Trump. Um, and Eric, I have to say I disagree with your, your take on this um, quite considerably, because, you know, the thing is, look at uh, how Trump won. I mean, he won in, basically in three states, right? Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Uh, and across those three states, he run, won by about over 100,000 votes. 100,000 votes out of about over 13 million in those three states. That's nothing, right? Um, it's hardly anything. And the reason that he, he won in those states, and I think this is where we've got to listen, actually listen to the people who voted for him. The reason he won is because there were a considerable number of people voted for a black president in 2008 and 2012, who in this election voted Trump. And why did they vote for him? Well, they voted for him for the reason that they said. Uh, it's about uh, the precariousness of their jobs. It's about um, not so much immigration, but you know, continuing deindustrialization, about automation, hollowing out work, these other concerns. It's about the squalor and the decline of the public spaces in which they live, and it's about what's filled those public spaces, which very often is, is crime, drug addiction, and so on, right? So this is the reason that they voted for Trump. They voted for the change candidate, right? So if you want an explanation for why Trump won, I don't think we have to get too complex, and we have to put it in some perspective. He got less votes uh, in losing, sorry, in winning than Romney, the Republican candidate, did in 2012. Um, he got about 23% of the electorate of all those entitled to vote, which again is lower than Republican candidates in the past, and very importantly, and certainly in the Rust Belt states, uh, he got fewer votes amongst the white working class than previous uh, Republican candidates had as well, particularly Romney in 2008. So I think you know we need to have some perspective on Trump. Now that doesn't mean to say that what Trump is going to do is not going to have very serious consequences for America and for the world. And I think some of the things that you've all been talking about are things that we need to take very seriously um, as things that we can think about as prompting crisis. Climate change, uh, global, anthropogenic global warming is the key one of those, but also nuclear proliferation, 
uh, role of new technologies following our work, I think, is, is very important. But uh, very briefly, to finish, uh, I'm with David here about how we conceptualize crisis. Right? We tend to think about crisis as the end of times, that the world's going to blow up. It's not. Not yet, anyway. Right? Um, what is causing what we perceive of, uh, perceive of as these crises uh, of the moment to do with immigration and to do with the rise of populism and so on? Are those internal factors or are they external factors? Is it population change? Is it climate change which is driving these crises? No. It's, it's a political crisis. It is a crisis to some extent of legitimacy. These are internal factors. And to be optimistic, right, there are political solutions available uh, to these crises, which things like Brexit and things like the election of Trump actually provide opportunities to develop, to find these political alternatives, not just to say we're all doomed, which we, we are. We are. We're all dead in the long term. But, uh, there are, there's still politics, and that's what I think we need to focus on. Thanks, Jason. <coughs> well, uh, that wasn't really a question, so I'm not going to go back to the panel, but I think I do have a question here. Yes, uh, but uh, I'm Shamal, and got a uh, question for the yes, uh, Turkey and Brazil uh, suffer from the same cause. Uh, More or less. Dic yeah, dictatorship, and economic inefficiency or corruption. In first part, I fully agree, but second part, I have a uh, completely different view because uh, Turkey is uh, technically in civil war. 18 to 20 million people suffer from uh, citizenship denial. That's a totally different issue. Um, and so what do you mean citizenship denial? Yeah, the uh, 20 to 80 million could uh, in Turkey exist, mm -hmm. but they are not allowed to practice their cultural language. Mm -hmm. This uh, crisis is far deeper than that. Uh, and uh, uh, I fully disagree with, uh, in economic size because, for example, in 2007 eight, uh, Turkey less affected and managed to recover far faster than some uh, European countries, namely uh, Spain and Italy. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I think Turkish crisis is not an economic uh, stupidness. This is about um, the effect of the first part, the leadership <laughs> or the, um, the other part of the, the unwillingness of the, uh, what's going on on the ground. Okay. My question to you is, where the crisis led? And do you see there will be a solution in 10, 20 years? To the Kurdish question. Yes. No, I don't see the question because I don't think we all heard the question. <laughs> yes, I think uh, uh, Shamal's question was: wasn't uh, much of Turkey's problems stem from? I mean, I'm translating with your permission. Uh, wasn't much of Turkey's problems also stem from uh, internal civil strife, ethnic strife between the Turkish majority and the Kurdish minority, and the rights of the Kurdish people and the security and the, and the uh, civil war implications of that play an important part compared to Brazil, which does not have that kind of immediate security and, uh, in fact, democracy problem. Yes, obviously, I think that is one uh, distinguishing factor between these two countries. And I don't know about the 
um, the exact economic implications of the Kurdish problem in Turkey quite significant, obviously, and over the past several years there have been some significant developments, uh, first positive, then negative. It used to be the case that Kurdish uh, movement sent representatives to the parliament individually through individual nominations and then they decided to enter elections as a party. What they did in the past was to enter into the parliament individually and then form a parliamentary group. <coughs> Since 2014, they have been entering the, the parliament as a political party because there's a 10% threshold to enter into the parliament as a political party, which amplified their numbers in the parliament greatly, and they became a major threat to the AKP. And that caused a lot of complications uh, for the ruling party in Erdogan. And uh, from then on, uh, starting especially in the 2015 elections, it's a downward spiral towards both the solution of the Kurdish problem and Turkish democracy as well. So that's a very significant problem. Is there a solution out of there? I don't think so, unfortunately. I don't see a way out of it because about 65% of the Turkish population is right-wing Sunni Turks, and they are half of, you know, 50% are most solid AKP supporters, the remaining 10-15% go for the uh, right-wing, slightly more secularist National Action Party, uh, proto-fascist party. So they are com completely joined forces at the moment. And that's what's driving Turkish politics these days, not good times for, you know, either Kurds or the uh, more urban uh, secular elites in the, you know, modernized segments of Turkish society, so. Okay, thanks. Some more questions. Yep, yep, Can I bring us back to the, sorry, the thumb of Trump? Um, <laughs> in a of speaking. And I, I just read today an article in the Harvard Business Review by Joan Williams. I don't know whether you've seen it, but um, she is saying what people don't understand about the American working class. And she points out, with some quite effective figures, that basically they hate professionals, don't like the poor, but don't mind rich people because they generate jobs. And what it seemed to me was that some of the things she was saying indicate that there is a growing band of people. If you look at the last British election, the average working class labor supporter was not thinking they were being served. It's a similar area. So is there, is there a new, I don't know, right-wing working class area developing. Do the old left-right balances, the Guardian Telegraph balances, no longer apply? <coughs> That's a great question. Who wants to start on like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good question. And I would, I would say, yes, I think there is a shift in, certainly in the West, away from the right-left economic question, which is still there. I'm not pretending it isn't about, you know, on the right you've got people who want low taxation and free markets, and on the left you want people who want redistribution. That question is still there, but I think it's being overshadowed more by divisions over values, and in particular uh, divisions between people who prefer order, cultural order, cultural stability, and those who 
are more embrace cultural change. That distinction between people who seek that, that order and people who seek change and novelty is a value division, and I think that's becoming much more prominent. If we look at the Trump vote, if we look at the Brexit vote, if we look at populist right voting in Western Europe, we see the same things over and over again. It's education, much more important than income. People with a degree don't tend to vote for these things. People who have low qualifications do. Income is not nearly as good at, at separating the two. Um, secondly, values, you know, death penalty, I mentioned that with Brexit vote, came up again with Trump vote, it's a much better way of telling if somebody is a, a Trump voter or not, is where they stand on that issue, where they stand on strict with your children, stiffer sentencing, all of these kind of value distinctions are much, in my view, a much better way of, of uh, determining whether someone's going to vote populist right or not. Similarly, the issue, the issue of inequality, I mean, if it was really about economic deprivation, you would expect more people to be saying, you know, I'm really concerned about inequality, people who voted for Brexit or Trump, and they're just not, and they're far less concerned. So anyway, I guess my, my view is, yes, there is this shifting uh, towards, you know, this more cultural-based cleavage in Western politics, which I think is becoming more important. Can we just quote one statistic out, which I found fascinating? She, in her analysis, said if the white working class women had voted 50-50 instead of voting for Trump, then Hillary would have got it. Which, all the stuff about glass ceilings, and it was because she was a woman, she didn't get through to those women. It's a funny, like 68% went um, to Trump. Sorry, I'll... So Alex, Alex wants to come in on Very quick, um, I wanted to make a defense of a certain kind of populism uh, and also bring in, sneak in a, a definitional thing. I mean, the definitional thing is that populism comes in many guises, as we know, but I think it's fundamental to make a distinction between broadly a left and a right wing. Uh, and I think that the right wing populism uh, has, is, is clearly nationalist, it has a often ethnic understanding of nationalism versus a more, much more civic understanding of popular sovereignty uh, on the left. It has, it is therefore almost inherently xenophobic insofar as it externalizes the causes of crisis. Whereas I think the um, left-wing populism is much more willing to incorporate our own baddies, if you like, uh, look at things vertically rather than uh, horizontally and blame foreigners or blame outsiders or outside forces rather than looking um, sometime, uh, which is, you know, is the painful thing, uh, in your very workplace or in your very uh, neighborhood. <clears throat> but most importantly, I think that there's um, an aspect which I hope connects to the question, and that is that um, I think left-wing um, populism, as it's been manifested, uh, Sanders might be an example, but of course some in Europe more recently in Spain and Greece are perhaps the most prominent <coughs> recent examples, is about participation. It's about rethinking what the public is, what the res publica is, what the public sphere is. And there, I don't buy that there's been a post-truth politics. I think, in fact, and I would even put my neck out here and say that in this country, the, the attempts at the beginnings of some kind of left-wing populism uh, under Corbyn, and I'm not a Corbyn fan, incidentally, uh, but I do think that uh, what he's, what he's mo beginning to mobilize is a much more sophisticated discussion of politics, <laughs> bringing in all kinds of themes that have been absent in these islands about devolution, about the north-south divide, 
bringing in words that we're not allowed to talk about, like the City of London, um, uh, about financialization. And finally, very, very quickly, so that was my defense, clearly, of, of the, but I think it ties into the definitional issues, uh, which you know, we could talk until the cows come home, but is important about working class. I, I, you know, as a trade unionist, for instance, I get very annoyed at the definition of, uh, of working class as blue collar men, basically. As if, you know, the support staff in this college are not working class. I mean, they're certainly salaried people, and so far as I know, they don't have uh, a huge control over their everyday uh, organization of their lives, and many of them are unionized. Many of them uh, do uh, have the kinds of problems that working class people have, even though they're salaried, uh, relating to childcare or relating to the uh, cost of living in London, etc., etc. So it's, a, it's a, 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 I suppose, a plea for, from a social scientific perspective, not just politically, for um, a reconsideration of what constitutes the working class, the, the feminization of the working class, the tertiarization of the working class. The, uh, the change in the skin colour of the working class uh, across uh, these islands, for instance, so that we don't fall back into the working class is just a minor. Yes, minors are a very important part of the working class uh, for all kinds of reasons, but they are by no means representative at all. And I think that begins to then explain some of the idiosyncrasies, including the lack of what Jason mentioned, the lack of participation. I don't have the figures and I don't know what they might be, but I, I would be curious to know whether there's a match between abstention and class in the recent US presidential elections. Thanks, Alex. Good. Some more questions from someone else? Yes. yes. If we look at a couple of issues, including Trump took side of, of Russia, and then against China, Brexit, Turkey, Iran, Syria, Yemen, climate change, and all the issues, how do you term uh, change one scenario, the, the new world order? Say that last bit again, sorry. How do you... How, how do you term the new world order? How do you define the new world order? Yes. Okay. We should have an answer question somewhere on this panel. I, I nominate David. <laughs> <laughs> second that. It's going to kill you later. I, guess, I mean, I won't... I won't answer the question, but... <laughs> but I'll pick up one thread of Eric's, this time agreeing with him, that <clears throat> even on the most optimistic scenarios of um, s slowing down demographic growth, there clearly is going to be very, very significant demographic growth, you know, in the next 35 years to 2050. So. The question, my question would be, well, what kind of global governance stroke interstate relations are there going to be, you know, when you've got 400 million Nigerians, if we get there? And that's on the optimistic scenario, um, 200 million Bangladeshis, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the US still will be the third largest state, just based on the projection in front of me with 440 million obviously massively behind India and China, but, you know, will we have, broadly speaking, a similar division of power between states when some states have become so much more numerous if they are? So it doesn't ask the question. I mean, if I may just draw attention to one interesting thing about the way that you, you measured things there. Um, surely the third largest 
political entity in, was it 20 years' time? That we're, these 2050, they are. In 2050, will we'll be the European Union, won't it? Uh, I mean, it's larger in population terms now than the United States, so isn't it going to... No, no, you're quite right. I'm just reading from a UN list that lists right. by countries, so yeah, you're quite right. If it, if it remains, you know, a union. We didn't invite any Europe experts on, on the panel. So, any more questions? Yeah. Uh, despite the effort of the global governance to uh, reduce the challenges of uh, the climate change, uh, do you think that we are, this is a lost cause? A lost cause because we are living in a world politically divided, with diversity and also uh, cultural differences. This is a it's not a pessimistic question, it's just a question of hope to hear what you think about that. Thank you. Is it Would you like to start? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I am an optimistic person. Um, I think if we look at how environmental issues have been addressed in the past, there hasn't been anything quite like climate change, right? Because quite rightly, it does require overhauling a lot of how we go about things day to day now. But if we think about other large environmental transboundary issues that have occurred, um, the one that kind of comes to mind is um, action to prevent, to decrease the hole in the ozone layer. So action to um, reduce uh, aerosol pollution, CFC pollution, and address that problem. It followed a very similar kind of a path to what we see now with um, climate change where you have this period of debating the science of the problem and should we do something, should we not, what should we do, industries not wanting to change, then as the technologies and the um, substitutes to overcome the problem um, became more feasible, there was a tipping point and um, negotiations started to go a bit better. Then as countries kind of worked out how to form alliances and negotiate in you know, intel more intelligent ways, Again, there was kind of progress was made, and you know, it took quite a long time, but the problem gets solved. And even though it was a simpler problem, right, it's a simpler problem to solve, and the technologies to address it were more um, easily accessible, I think we can take a bit of hope from that that we have got a track record, a tentative bit of success with addressing transboundary environmental issues. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of the same things happening now, where we've had this period of figuring out the science, debating the science, having negotiations, talking about the solutions. I think we have a lot of reason to be hopeful because we've done similar, we've addressed similar problems in the past. But I'm an optimistic person. Does anyone want to come in being more pessimistic? Shall we move on? Okay, um, yes. Yeah, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but um, you, you, the, the climate change argument put forward is, is that not based largely on the fact that the Chinese economy in the last three years, where we've had this plateau out, the, the economy's dipped quite substantially. So, I mean, would it not be, you know, when they, the economy picks up again, they're going to start to give more coal? It depends on how you view this, because there have been some studies that have said it's not just due to an economic dip, but due to a, a shift from you know, the quantity of economic growth to more of a concentration on the quality of economic growth. And I think if there continue to be a, uh, a focus on that sort of quality of living, quality of life, um, 
you know, not wanting to have to deal with the health impacts of a lot of pollution from coal plants, then we might see, um, then we might see that continue. Um, but I think the key thing at the moment is that we've had this stabilization and that's a positive. Uh, despite the fact that globally, I think globally, the economy has been increasing despite this dip. So, you know, it's a time to kind of capitalize on that and try and continue that, I think. Um, but yeah, certainly if we look to, for example, the Kyoto Protocol, if we look to, to that, certainly economic issues do have a, have a role in what direction the graph is going. Okay, we have a question right down the back, I think, yeah. Yeah. Stand up and then sort of shout. Speak loud, please. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Can't hear you. Sorry. Given that the, um, the world population is rising and it is looking to age, and particularly the West, um, how do you think that's going to impact more of it? Because governments and countries are going to have to move more of their um, wealth away from military into social. Payments and pensions, etc. So, how do you think that's going to have an effect on the world stage in terms of power? Is it going to happen? Um, okay, well, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, yeah, how much th there is. Uh, there are people who talk about a, something called a geriatric peace. <laughs> um, and I can point you to some of this literature, which I think is quite interesting, actually, which argues that it's not just the fact that countries are getting older, but it means that people are less likely to want to sacrifice their children or take risks in warfare when the number of kids that they have is lower. Uh, it's also the case that more money has, more even of the military budget has to be spent on pensions and personnel rather than military hardware. Uh, so it's not just the fact that more money is being spent on hospitals and on the elderly than on military. But, but those two factors, some would argue that because of that, a lot of the, the current world powers, including Russia, China, which is, by the way, going to be an older society than the U.S. in the 2020s because of its low birth rate, um, means that this will turn countries inward more and they'll be less inclined uh, to want to go around the world on military adventures. They just don't have the boots to put on the ground. Of course, the wild card in that is technology, and I don't know much about artificial intelligence and, and whether robots will be doing the fighting. If so, demography matters less. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, new era of cyber warfare. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you about uh, complexity. It's been mentioned a few times. Um, you know, before a heart attack, apparently, sometime before, your heart settles into a very steady rhythm. Now, obviously, a human body is a complex system where you touch something and it affects elsewhere. Now, clearly the climate is that, very much so. So when you're looking at the data and you're looking back across the past and looking at the figures, it doesn't provide you with any ability to project forward what may happen because it's a complex system and emergence is one of the properties. Now, that could apply to population, applies to politics, but if we focus on climate, which seems to be the really big issue for us, mm -hmm. what are the alternatives beyond using experts and data and looking backwards? What can we do to look forwards to anticipate a potential uh, systemic collapse or 
very significant increase a la black swan, a la financial crisis. Okay. Actually, before you answer that, um, we're coming very near to the end now, so I'll just see if there are any more questions. It's, yeah, um, let's take another question. I mean, this complexity question, you, you directed it to climate change, but perhaps it's something that other members of the panel would also like to comment on, like, you know, what are its implications for population projection as well. So, yeah, if we can take another question. Yeah, mine's a much simpler question. Um, it's to do with social media and how it informs us for the news, whether it's climate change um, or climate deniers or whether it's politics and the sort of the bubble that people seem to live in with it. How do we sort of get around that problem so that we can actually have a discussion with people who oppose our views and get more information out and get more understanding out there? Thank you. And any final thoughts? I mean, the other thing perhaps I could ask you to comment on, yeah? I just wondered how you saw the linkages between uh, attitudes to immigration and attitudes to the environment and climate change. Whether people, we're more, if we're, those who are more globally aware uh, are more keen to share resources with other nationalities, or are they, are they linked, are they not linked at all? And back there. Um, to what extent do you think um, recent political crises are a, a, a cry against global economic governance? I'm thinking WTO, <coughs> Paris, and where do you see those institutions in the next 20 to 30 years? Well, that's great because I think we've got something for, <laughs> yeah, for everyone much, yeah. to, to say. So, um, I didn't know if we can start with you and okay. So, emergence, emergent phenomena in climate system. Okay, um, so you're quite right that a key part of it is looking back as far as we possibly can at the data. That's not just about looking to the pre-industrial era, but about looking back to past um, ice ages back as far as we can go, so hundreds of thousands of years, to get a sense of what is the full remit of what the climate system could throw at us. Um, you're quite right that it's not, um, that there are emergent phenomena, it's not a linear system. Um, so there's certain tipping points where systems that have been coping so far could be thrown into a different mode, into a different state. Uh, which has implications for people who have been adapting to a gradual change and then suddenly find that over a much shorter space of time their entire um, area that they're living in changes. In terms of how we can understand that, um, we can do a lot with modelling to try and imagine these kinds of things, how it could play out in the future. Um, so, you know, trying to understand what would be the effect of more freshwater going into the North Atlantic, does it have impacts for ocean circulation, does it tip things into another state or something like that. Um, but there's always the possibility that there are things that could happen under a warmer climate that we don't know about because it will only happen when we get to that stage. So there is always going to be an element of the unknown unknowns um, with trying to understand what might happen. Eric, would you like to follow on population projections? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say one thing, which is that, that unlike climate, uh, demography is the most predictable of the social sciences. So we're not likely to get uh, some sort of a spike in, sudden spike in population uh, from for, due to complexity. You might get a population collapse, but that's something else. Uh, it's not like fish stocks that suddenly drop or something. But, but, where you do see, I'd say, complexity is, is in value change. So, for example, 
the sudden shift towards more tolerance of homosexuality uh, couldn't have been predicted just by looking at the new generations and their attitudes. I mean, you can get a situation where there's a sudden critical mass of people who are liberal on, on homosexuality, and then that can tip a lot of people over. Uh, so that's that's one instance where you might see that in, in, in social change. Also, national identity, I would argue, is has a complex uh, emergent element that people like Englishness is not something that the government has pushed, but it's emerged largely from below. So that's another example. Um, yeah, I mean, we could go on, but I don't want to get. There's other questions. Yeah. Should, I mean, I, should I address this immigration environment? Oh question? yeah. Sure. I mean, that 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 is an interesting one because actually, if you think about those issues. Um, there is a link between hostility to immigration and not wanting population to rise to put pressure on the environment. And even though we haven't seen those two coalitions together very often, you, there have been a number of times, so there was a debate in the Sierra Club in California on the issue of immigration, where, which really split the Sierra Club down the middle, because actually reducing the growth in California's population was something that really mattered a lot of those people cared about, but because they were liberal Democrats, they didn't really want to open that can of worms. So it is a very interesting area. Yeah. Ali, would you like to come in on yes. these questions? Uh, yes, uh, a couple uh, things. One on the complexity issue, not directly related to what the, the gentleman suggested, but the I do think that complexity is an enemy of politics in many ways. People usually don't necessarily how most people don't have the patience or the energy to think about how complex the world is and you know process all the information all of abstraction and all you know people do I would not say people as a populist attitude but <laughs> there is that percentage of the voter population that appreciates this take back control, make America great again. And the, the kind of, I just pick a bone with the, the Alex, the, the kind of deep rethinking of politics, these people already vote on the left. You need the guy who voted for Blair, you need the person who voted for Clinton and then Obama, right? And you need to go to those people with simple messages for the, you know, perhaps the, the majority. And, all that. and that is a very big challenge for the left especially in the age of social media and that, that sharing of information and processing the like. So, so complexity, yes, the world is more complex, but we have to go to people with simple messages. Otherwise, we're going to lose that to Trump every single time. There's no, no question about that. On global economic governance, that's also related to, to, to complexity. I do think uh, that elites whoever they are in these institutions and a lot of policymakers did wake up to the fact that there is massive need for uh, upgrading these institutions and I'm not very pessimistic that way but again change is very very slow so in 20 years from now they will have perhaps it will be a slightly better system in place but it won't be the, 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 there's a difference in this, the pace of change in different areas in politics, you know, and the economy, and I don't think it will be sufficient. So that's my prediction. David, would you like to take up any of the questions? You don't really understand what you mean by upgrading. You mean making them more representative or what? More representative, more effective in, in you know, regulatory side of things. Okay. Um, I mean, 
my only observation really is in relation to the, the governance of the, of the economy. And I think it, a lot will hinge on what happens now in very tangible trade protection areas. I mean, we, it is entirely conceivable that there will be very strong forces pushing for protectionism uh, in a way which we just haven't seen for, well, since the late 20s and early 30s, really. Um, and, and so what happens to the institutions depends entirely on how the states balance their involvement, let's just say in the WTO, but it could be in any, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the pressures from specific lobbies within their economies uh, to put tariffs on X, Y or Z product. And I guess there are two scenarios. One, that things could unravel very, very quickly um, with uh, classic protectionist wars. And yet, it's rather difficult to imagine that happening because of the way that global production and finance and other services are so interconnected. So were it to happen, basically you'll have an immediate shutdown of much of our pollution-producing activities, which is difficult to conceive, but, but nothing is, is impossible, given that you know, it just depends on interstate relations and, and, and trust. Thank you. And Alex. Well, very, very quickly, uh, I mean, I think simple but not simplistic. Yeah. Um, and complexity is a challenge. I don't think it's necessarily a threat to politics, or at least the politics, the democratic politics that I assume most of us in this room would want to, to endorse. Um, but I do think it challenges us to what the um, um, early 20th century Italian communists called the common sense, uh, you know, to develop a common sense, which is about language, but it's also about everyday existence, um, you know, trying to, going back to this populism that I was talking about, talking about the problems that most of London are, is facing, uh, about expensive transport, uh, unaffordable housing, um, the life world aspects that I was mentioning earlier, care of the elderly. Uh, I think though that's, that's at one level, um, palpable and everyday, and I think that's, that's the kind of politics of the common sense that, it, that, uh, that can be simple without being simplistic. Very quickly to touch on the issue of um, on complexity and analysing complexity, and I hope and think that today's panel has been a very good example, uh, if I can take your role as, uh, to close in this sense, that we've got a real sense of different registers and different levels of abstraction from the very empirical and scientific to what I'm going to say, which is a bit more uh, in the uh, vein of historical sociology. And I make no apologies because I learn a hell of a lot from my colleagues. And I think the trick then is to articulate those different registers. So for instance, with time, and I think it's been one of the themes that the scale, as Aideen was talking about, of the challenge in geographical terms, but also the, the different temporal dynamics that are going on. This is uh, climate change is a long term. Uh, it supersedes the political cycle. It will probably supersede our own uh, lives in, in this room. But um, there's a French historian called Fernand Braudel who some 40, 50 years ago spoke to three different kinds of time. Uh, there's the events that happen, um, like last week's events. There is a conjunctural time, which to um, freelance a bit, uh, freestyle a bit, but is linked 
to the rise of populism uh, across different parts of the Atlantic. But then there's the really long durée, the, the long duration, the, the more natural static elements. I think we've got to keep an eye on all those three elements, but I think one thing, and with this I will wrap up, that has happened over the past three or four hundred years is the very distinctive type of civilization, namely a capitalist civilization, has accelerated those phenomena. Um, you know, climate change has been happening, I'm sure Aideen would, or others would, would confirm this, throughout the history of this great planet, but there's some phenomena that have clearly been accelerated, and I think that's, that's the big challenge, the acceleration of, of time. Thank you very much, Alex. I've got one very important announcement to make uh, before we wrap up, which is uh, that the panel will be going to the Brie Louise on Coburg Street, which is the northbound street just to the... If you cross Euston Road, it's northbound and it's just to the west of the main road going up past Euston Station. And uh, not only are you all very welcome to come along, I hope you've booked a large enough space, but Alex put in his message that the department will buy the first round of drinks. So uh, <laughs> definitely an incentive uh, to follow up. Uh, so whether you're going up there or not, I think we should show our appreciation. To